0: If you would take a copy of Scripture, our reading this morning is going to be from Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And our reading is going to take place from verse, verses 67 through 79. Luke 1 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I'd
1: like to begin with a word of God, we are grateful that we can look at your word. It is a privilege. It is something that we should never take for granted. To know that this, this passage that we're gonna look at is not just of human thoughts, it is your communication with us, Lord? I pray that you will help us to understand the the beauty of forgiveness, the awe of the fact that you sent your Son as a baby for us. Lord, I pray that you will just help us to learn through this, to grow, and that you will receive the glory for what is done. Today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, as special Will read, is our, our text for today. I want to uh, ask a, a question. How many of you love Christmas music? Christmas music. Okay, I want to just do a quick survey. How many of you feel that um, you shouldn't start listening to Christmas music till December? Are there any of those in here? There's a few of you. Okay, how? It's kind of it's kind of the same time, especially this year. But how many feel you can you can start right after Thanksgiving? How many of you are in that category? How many of you start listening to Christmas music in early November? Any of those? Okay. How many of you start before November? Few of you. How many of you listen to Christmas music all year long? Any of, Okay. We do have a few of those. That is okay. Uh, I love Christmas music um, of all kinds. Um, My wife and I have gotten to debates over the years when we can listen to it. I'm the one that's like, okay, let's wait a little longer. She likes it earlier. But uh, I I still do love Christmas music. In fact, I have my car radio currently set on a station that plays Christmas music all season, and and I love it. I read an article recently that said that you can tell a lot about a person by their favorite Christmas song. So we're going to test this out a little bit. Now, none of these are, are sacred songs, so to understand we're having a little fun here. Okay, uh, how many of you, your favorite song is Frosty the Snowman? Anyone? Okay, well, that doesn't describe you then. Here, here's what it says. If your favorite song is Frosty the Snowman, then you cherish the classic Christmas. Christmas takes you back to your childhood with a wonder and awe of the season. There you go. None, that's none of you. How many of you, your favorite Christmas song is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas? Any of you love that song? Okay, I see a couple hands. This is you. You are an emotion sentimental person. You love everything emotional, everything sentimental. You probably watch all of the Home Rock Christmas movies. That's true. Some of you. How many of you, your favorite Christmas song is White Christmas? Okay, there's a few. Okay? that If you are that person, then you are a very old-fashioned person. You and your family probably have some very odd and maybe even unique traditions that everyone else thinks is a little strange. I didn't write this. Someone else did. How many of you would say your favorite Christmas song is, Grandma got run over by a reindeer? <laughs> Okay, sadly some people raised their hand. Again, I didn't write this. It says this. You are either eight years old or you have the maturity of an eight-year-old. Those of you raised your hand, just remember I didn't write this, but it's probably true. But what about Christmas carols? What are your favorite Christmas carols? Um, I stated this last year in a message around Christmas season, but uh, it has been... Uh, tested and voted and it said that the most popular all-time Christmas carol is Oh Holy Night. Maybe for you it's Silent Nights or "O Little Town of Bethlehem or Joy to the World. Um, whatever it is for you, Christmas carols speak so much truth and so much volume, don't they? Uh, Pastor Nate even said today, and I don't, I don't know how many of you caught this, but we sang an extra song today because Really, we have only so many weeks to sing Christmas carols, and so we had to throw another one in there because there's so many good ones out there. In the biblical account of Christmas, in the Christmas story, there are actually four passages in Scripture that are referred to as songs of Christmas. Some people have actually called these the original Christmas carols. There are these four songs who have been uh, have, have been sung through the years, or just read through the years, or preached through the years, and most of them are known even by their Latin titles that have been around for a thousand uh, years or more. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to look at the three of them. The fourth one we're not going to look at, and you could see it, it's, it's found in Luke chapter 2, verse 29 through 32. This is known as the Song of Simeon. Simeon was described as a a righteous man, a a devoted man, a man who was waiting the Messiah, and and, and he recognized when when, uh, Jesus' parents brought him to the temple, he recognized Jesus as that Messiah, and upon seeing Jesus, he uh, he, uh, held Jesus, and he began to uh, proclaim what you see there in Luke chapter 2. Next week we're going to look at the Song of the Angels following up, we're going to look at the Song of Mary, but today I want to focus on a song that probably we don't usually look at in the Christmas story, and that is, as you see in there, the Song of Zachariah. What do we know about this guy? And how does, how does Zachariah play into the Christmas story? Well, if you read all of Luke 1, which we're not going to read all of it, but if you look at Luke chapter 1, we learn about Zachariah and who Zechariah was. In the beginning of Zach, uh, Luke chapter 1, Zechariah and his wife, uh, Elizabeth, were, were, were called blameless. They were called righteous. They were called holy individuals because they walked with God. Now, Zechariah was a priest. He was not the high priest. He was a priest. And so with that, there was there was priestly responsibility that he had, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Zechariah and his wife desperately wanted children, but they were unable to. The Bible says Elizabeth was barren. And what added to the, the, the fact that she was barren and that they couldn't have children was also the Bible describes them as advanced in years. Now every every priest uh, like Zachariah would serve in the temple, and there was a lot of responsibilities they had. We're not going to get into that, but one of the specific areas that these priests would do was every um, every year for a week, two times throughout the year, they would be devoted to specific areas of worship inside the temple, and and there was a few uh, priests that were involved in that. And in, in that process, what they would do is they would. They would uh, cast lots, and the one who got the, the, the correct lot would then be chosen to go into, uh, offer incense to God. This was a big deal. This was, in many cases for these priests, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where they would stand in, in the presence of God, and this was a huge thing. Well, Zechariah got the lot, and was chosen to go in to do this. And so he went into, uh, in to do this, and while he was there, the Bible tells us that an angel appeared to him, an angel by the name of Gabriel, and he brought him a message. He said to him that you and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a son, and you're going to call his name John. And John's ministry was going to be be a forerunner for the Messiah. He was going to be the one that was going to prepare the people for the fact that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was coming. Now, naturally, and if you've heard the story, you know, naturally, because of his age, because of the fact that his wife was barren, Zechariah didn't believe. He doubted How is How was that possible? So the Bible says that because of his unbelief, God caused him to be mute. He couldn't speak until the day John was born. So after nine months of silence, Elizabeth gave birth to a son. And everyone rejoiced. Everyone was excited, as understandably, when anyone has a child, people are excited. But especially in this situation, they desired for it, they longed for it, and they and they had a son. And, and eight days later, as was the tradition among the Jews, they would bring this baby boy to be circumcised, and that is when they would name the child. And they 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 brought their child to uh, the to to be circumcised and to be named. And and everyone thought, oh, maybe he'll be named after his father. But instead, uh, uh, Elizabeth said, no, his name is going to be John. Now, that didn't make sense. That wasn't a family name. There was no reason that they would think that he would be named John. And so they turned to Zachariah Again, he couldn't speak at this point, but he could write. And so they turned to him, and they said, is this to be so? And he, he grabs a, a writing tablet, and he writes down his name is John. Immediately, the Bible tells us he was able to speak, and he began to praise God. It's in response to these events that that Zechariah shares and, and prophesies and sings this song of praise that we see starting in Luke chapter one verse sixty-seven. Now, what is the main idea of this passage or of this uh, proclamation that Zechariah made? Well, it, it, it's rather simple. This this song, which I said, is known by its Latin name, which is Benedictus. Is Uh, is is simple. There's an easy theme to see because you see it. Let's look at verse uh, 68. In verse 68 it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited, visited his people. We'll talk about that later. Down in verse 78 he says, Because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. It's easy to understand the theme. The theme here is simple. It's that God visited his people. Now this word visited is a word that simply means that he personally was visiting someone. So it's not hard to understand. Um, God, and for us, maybe this is hard for us to wrap our mind around because we live in the church age. We live outside of the Old Testament. But for the Jews, this was a big deal because God was not just going to visit them in a cloud. God was not just going to visit them in the Holy of Holies. He was going to actually dwell with them. That was huge. So with that theme in mind, let's begin to dive into this, this text. And really, honestly, this, is, uh, this text is too long for us to do uh, uh, perfect justice to it. I want you to understand that. But we're going to do our best that we can to get through this text. So I'm going to look at a few things about this text. First of all, we want to see that God, from this text, we can see that God had a divine plan for the salvation of his people. Look in the text again, verse 68. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. There is no better way to begin a prophetic song than by praising God, by praising what God has done. Now we notice in verse 67, it said that he was filled with the Spirit. So uh, uh, the natural inclination of a person filled with the Spirit should be praise. But what was He blessing God for? Why was he blessing God? Notice what it says there. He blessed God. Why? Because he visited and redeemed His people. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. It's, it's, it's clear as you look at this past, this text, that it's in past tense. Notice that. He said he visited. He didn't say he will visit. Now, if you look at verse 78 in that, he says, he shall visit. So what's the the reason for what seems to be a contradiction? I believe it's this. I believe the reason for this past tense in verse uh, 68 and the the future tense in verse 78 is because Zechariah was so convinced that in his mind, as if it already happened, he has such a faith in God, such a belief in God, and, and maybe it was the nine months not being able to speak. Maybe it was uh, just because he was a devout man, he was a godly man, he was a wise man, he was a righteous man. Whatever it was, he was convinced that this was happening so much so that he, he used it in the past tense. Then he mentions why the Messiah visits people. Look what he says there in verse 68. For he visited his people and he redeemed if you've been in church long, you've probably heard the phrase redeem means to buy back with price. In other words, that there is a cost for this purchase, and the cost we know is the, the blood and the death of Jesus Christ, that, that he redeemed them, he set them free, he, uh, he bought them back, and the, the cost was not money, the cost was not uh, things, the cost was Jesus Christ died. Now, before we go on, though, we need to look again at verse 68. It says he redeemed who? His people. In order to accurately interpret this prophecy, we need to establish what is he talking about when he says his people. Now, uh, I believe that he is directing this prophecy towards Israel. Now, let me give you why I say that. Look at just a few things. First of all, in verse 68, it says the God of Israel. Israel. He's talking about the God of Israel. Look at verse 69. In verse 69, he says, in the house of his servant David. In verse 70, he says in that passage, uh, 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 the prophets uh, from of old, those would have been Jewish prophets, and so they would have understood that. Look at verse 72. There he says, show mercy promise to our fathers. I believe here that Zechariah is talking about God visiting and redeeming his people. That means Israel, I think we see that there. But here's the thing. Some Jews received their Messiah. But the fact is that most of the Jews rejected him. And still do. However, Israel's rejection opened the door for, for redemption for the Gentiles. Notice this passage in Romans when Paul is talking about this idea. And he says this. So I ask, did they stumble, that is the Jews, the Israelites, did they sin, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, was this something that caught that, that God off guard? No, it wasn't. God knew that his people was going to reject. God's plan all the way back in the beginning was that salvation was going to be to all people. We see that when God said to Abraham, your seed will bless all the people in the world. God knew that this was going to happen, but because when God said, we see this year, it wasn't a shock. It wasn't a change of plan. It was that God was now opening it to the Gentiles. This was a new thing. But here, Zachariah is talking about his people. But in turn, it impacts all of us, this redemption that is said uh, here in this passage. But then as we go through this, the following verses, it becomes clear that this, this redemption, this, this salvation that he begins to talk about was a part of God's plan all along. Look at just some of the phrases. I want you to notice these. Look at uh, in verse 79. It says, he raised up a horn of salvation. Now here again, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Horn of salvation, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, a horn was a symbol of power and authority. Salvation meant deliverance from some kind of bondage. So what he's saying here is this one that was raised up has, has the authority, the power to deliver Unlike anyone else before, it has had that ability. And how did he do it? He did it through redemption that we see previous. We continue on in verse uh, in verse sixty nine. It says, "In the house of his servant David." Now this is an interesting phrase, and I, I just want to say that um, this points out to the fact that he is talking about Jesus. Um, some have interpreted this this text to mean maybe the whole text is about John. But I believe this shows us otherwise because John was a Levite, not from the house of David. Jesus was from the house of David. and So he's, he, there we see he's referring to that. In verse 70, he says, if you look there, he says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, that this this salvation is something that had been spoken by the prophets for, for, for a long time, for many, many years. We see an example of this in Jeremiah. We're not going to dwell on this, but Jeremiah, he talks about how he will save them. People, and that, that's the same idea of redeem them. The redemption of God's people came through Jesus Christ. Now, the redemption of God's people came through Jesus Christ, and yet they thought it was going to be a political thing, a physical thing. But it wasn't. But the point is, we look at this passage is as it says in verse 71, that they would be saved from their enemies. The point is, is that God was about to do what he had promised. Now again, for us, we're looking at it from the future and looking back. But for Zechariah, this this was probably a huge moment. For basically, for their entire lives, all they had been taught is that one day, this Messiah would come. The prophets saw it coming uh, they didn't get it in every detail.
0: No one saw it clearly.
1: They didn't know when it would happen. They didn't know how it happened. But the prophets knew it coming. Micah spoke about it. Isaiah spoke about it. Jeremiah spoke about it. Moses knew about it. Abraham knew about it. And, and they all saw it coming. And they all looked through some like dim mist of history and saw that in the future, this This Messiah would come and he would visit his people. He would not just be in a cloud again. He wouldn't just be some uh, uh, power that they knew about. It would be that he would literally come down to earth and visit him. Zechariah knew what was going to happen. They just didn't know when. And here's Zechariah saying, "It's coming. He's about to visit us. They knew that God's plan all along, all along, was to bring salvation to his people. That was all part of God's grand plan. But secondly, God had a transforming purpose for the salvation of his people. Look at verse 72. He talks about saving the people, and then verse 72 he says, Hey, but here's here's my purpose. Why? To show mercy to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, The oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, to grant us that uh, we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He says that he he wants to reveal his mercy. We're going to talk about that a little later on. He gets into that more. And he wants us to know that he remembered our covenant. He wants us to know that he kept the oath and and that he promised Abraham. And, And then he says in verse 74 that we, here's why, the ultimate purpose of God's visitation was not to free his people from some physical restraint, but to bring salvation from sin. The visitation of God was to show mercy, to keep the covenant, all those things. But why did he do all these things for his people? He rescued them. He visited them. He delivered them. Why? So that they could be changed. So that they could be transformed. If you look in this this text, it says in verse 74, he delivered them. That word delivered there means rescue. The idea there is to snatch out of danger. God was visiting his people to rescue them through his power by the shed blood of Messiah. In order that, not only his people, but we as as the Gentiles that God opened the door for would be changed. What does it say specifically? I want you to notice this. Why why were they rescued? Look at the end of verse uh, 74. that we might serve him without fear. In the, in the New Testament, the idea of serving God is, is over and over. It's the idea of worshiping God. It's, it's giving to God everything that we have. If you look back, if you look ahead at Luke chapter 2, verse 37, look there if you will, Luke 2, verse 37, this is talking about the, the widow, Anna, who was a prophetess, and she was in the temple, and it, as describing her, it says that uh, uh, she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and praying, the idea, there is the same idea that we see here of, of serving, it's that she was, she was continuing attending to the things of God over and over and over again. And we have been saved from our enemies, and our enemy is Satan. We, have, we, we, are, we are saved from our sins so that we can serve him all the days of our life. Then he says something interesting. He says that we can do it without fear. Now, people in the Old Testament lived in constant fear. Now, think about it. You're under the law. If you're under the law, and, and uh, you had to abide by the law. You lived in constant fear. You served God with fear because because you knew that hey, if if I broke this law, I could be stoned. If I, if I broke this law, I could be thrown out of the of uh, the town. If I if I did this, and it was this constant uh, of fear, and God was this was this uh, scary in their mind being. They for most of them, they didn't have an a. And so when he says here that it's without fear, it's because of what Jesus Christ did that we no longer have to live in fear. Now, the Bible says that we're to serve him with reverence, and, uh, and it gives the idea of the fear of the Lord, but not in the fear of, of, of such a terror that we're crippled. We're to serve him without fear because there's an intimacy. There's an intimacy that says that because of what Jesus Christ did, no longer we have to cower in fear. The Bible actually says that we can call God Abba, Father. There's a a closeness there. The Bible says that Jesus can be our our friend. The Holy Spirit can be our comforter. We are filled with the Holy Spirit and we can serve him. We don't serve him out of fear anymore. We serve him with joy, with gratitude. And, through all, uh, and, and though we were prior to Christ slaves to Satan, we have been set free. And then he goes on and he says in verse 75 that we serve him with fear. And how do we do it? He says in, in holiness and righteousness before God. How? When? All the days of our lives. So God had a purpose, and he always had a purpose, and Zechariah was explaining that, but he also said he had a purpose of transforming us. But thirdly, I want you to see that God sent a prepared forerunner a forerunner, to announce the salvation of his people. Now, up until this point, up until verse 75, Zechariah had been talking about the Messiah. He had been talking about Jesus Christ and, and how he would rescue people, his people. Then he here seems to shift his attention towards his son John for a bit, Uh, and this is just a theory, but uh, I think it's a pretty accurate theory. John was just born. He's, at this point, eight days old. Zechariah's gone through nine months of not being able to speak. And his son is born, and and he names his son, and now he's able to speak, and so he uses this opportunity to to praise God. And I, I imagine that John, uh, excuse me. Zachariah is going through this and he's praising him. And maybe his son is uh, right there in the room with him. Maybe he's even holding his son at this time. And he's going through this and he's talking about this promised Messiah and, and how he's going to free his people. And, and he's going through all that and he looks down and he sees his son in his arms. And he says, Look what he says in verse 76 And you, child. You can, you can hear the love of a dad looking at him in this proud. He says, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his people, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. One author described it this way, how thrilling was it for this old man to gaze into the cradle where, where lay the child who would call the nation back to God. We could see the, the priest stooped down in the cradle and raised his precious bundle in his arms, and he spoke directly to the infant and thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High God. A prophet. He understood that not a a priest. Zechariah was a priest. Israel had many priests. Not a priest, a prophet. And although John had been born into the tribe of Levi, and the normal course of action would be that he would probably become a priest. Um, But that's not what he is. Zechariah looks at his son and he says, you're going to be different. You are going to be a prophet, but not just any prophet. You are going to be a prophet of the Most High God. And what you have, your mission is huge. Your mission is you are going to prepare the nation for the coming of the Messiah. And John was that. He was a prophet. He was a preparer. He was a preacher. And John began his ministry and he and later on, he began his ministry by going into the deserts and, and the regions around the Jordan River and preaching the doctrine of repentance from sin. And, and, and multitudes of people, men and women, flocked to hear his message. And multitudes of people began to follow him and receive what he had to say gladly. And people were prepared for the coming of Jesus. And he baptized many and he prepared the way. And he was the one that, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But at this moment, John is eight days old, and his father looks and he sees clearly that that God has a plan for his son, and his plan is huge. It's to to announce to the world, but specifically to the people of Israel, the coming of this Messiah that we have planned for, and we have heard about, and we have and, and we have waited for so long. His father plainly saw that. He included his son in this. But then he turns his attention back to the messiah and the last thing we want to look at is that god brought a glorious effect through the salvation of his people he turns his attention back to jesus starting at, at the uh, end of verse 77 so he says in verse 76 you child you will be the prophet of the most high and your responsibility will be go to prepare the way for the people to give knowledge of salvation to the and he begins to declare, "This salvation has wonderful effects, effects that, uh, that are not just for the people of Israel, but are for you all. If you are one that's placed your faith and you believe that this Messiah did come to earth, that this promised one came to earth, and not only did he come, did he come as a babe, as we celebrate this time of year, but he came and he died. And these promises are for you. Let's look at them. First of all." Salvation brought personal forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins means once and for all God took them away. He removed the guilt, the punishment, the power of sin. And to release one's sin, to forgive one's sin, it's not just uh, release from the the legal charge or from the penalty of sin, but release from the dominion of sin, the power of sin over you. interesting because if we look into in uh, when John began to minister, notice what John's message was. This was John's message. He says, "Now nah, uh, then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. Um, I put the wrong passage in there. So, sorry about that. But if you look at, it's uh, the right reference, the wrong verse. If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 4, uh, John says what? Repent receive the forgiveness of sins. John understood that. Zechariah understood that. Here's the interesting, Zechariah was a righteous man. We see that at the beginning of Look, he, he was righteous, he was devout, he was one that followed God, and yet, and yet, he lost his ability to speak for nine months. Why? Because he, had, he lacked faith. And so I think, I think Zechariah understood the beauty and the power of He says in this passage that that John came to to preach that the Messiah was coming, but this salvation would bring forgiveness. But he goes on, salvation would not only bring forgiveness, but salvation comes by way of uh, the the, the mercy of God. Look in the text again, verse 78, he says, this forgiveness comes because of the tender mercy of our God. Just as Zachariah understood the value of forgiveness, he also understood that that this that this forgiveness does not come by merits. We are not forgiven because we are worthy. It does not come by effort. We are not forgiven because we work towards forgiveness. It comes only through mercy. Every sin that you have ever committed, every sin that you have ever done, is forgivable by God, but it's not because of you. And I love. Because we often think of mercy, and I don't know, maybe it's just me. We often think of mercy as the harsher brother of grace. You know, grace is like, hey, I get all this good stuff. Mercy is God just removes our punishment. But notice the, the, the phrasing he uses here, verse 78. He says, because of his tender mercy. I love that. Charles Spurgeon used to say this. He used to say, mercy is music, but tender mercy is the most exquisite music you can imagine. And all of this is from God. But when we think about the powerful Fearful, terrifying God of the Old Testament that we hear about. When we think about him being the giver of tender mercy, it should bring us to our knees. Charles Spurgeon, again, described it this way. He says, if you think of this tenderness in connection with God, it will strike you with wonder for an instant that one so great, so powerful, so magnificent should also be so tender. For we are apt to impute omnipotence or power, uh, a crushing energy which can scarcely take account of the little, the feeble, the suffering things of this world. Yet if we think again, the surprise will disappear and we will see with new wonder and admiration that his mercy must exist because of who he is. That's a beautiful thought. That this forgiveness comes from mercy, but it's tender mercy. God loves us so much that he wants to offer us mercy. And how do we know that God will give us this mercy? Look at the end of verse 78. He says, whereby in the sunrise shall visit us from on high. How do we know that this... This tender mercy will come from God. This this God in the Old Testament that punished so severely at times. Just just this week, I was talking with uh, my my son about the the passage in the Old Testament where God punished Korah. Do you remember that? I mean, and, and because they rebelled against God, God actually caused the earth to open up and them to be sucked into the ground. No wonder the people lived in fear. And yet this God, this same God, says, I want to offer to you tender mercies. How is it possible? Look what it says in the end verse 78. Because the sunshine visited us. The sunrise visited us. What does that mean? I, I like the way one author said it. He said it this way. Jesus is the breaking of the dawn. The sunrise for mankind. He is the rising one that brought the light into the world. I, I remember when I was uh, in college and I worked at Camp in Wyoming, and one one particular time, a group of us went up, and we went camping one night, and we camped up, uh, and, and uh, just um, just at the base of this mountain, and uh, the, the the mountain was to our east, and so in the morning, I remember waking up, and you could look, and the sun was behind the mountain, and so you could look at the distance, and there was there was light in the distance, but where we were was just dark, and then and, and then it was just like all of a sudden the, the the sun just crested over the top of the mountain and it was just like explosion of light. And it was it was so beautiful to see that. It was just and and that's the idea here this is that that the, the the sunrise Jesus Christ is going to visit us. And it's and, and imagine with me the, the 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 history of mankind and here it is there, the history of mankind is this this darkness, this overshadowing of sin, this This oppression, and then suddenly, suddenly, over the mountaintops, Jesus Christ. And he did something, and the world has never been the same since the day spring appeared. The glory of God. The sunlight 2,000 years ago. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how much this world drastically changed the moment that that little baby was born? it'll never be the same. It's a beautiful thought, and that that is how we know that we will receive mercy, because this little baby came and was born, and ultimately he died for us. Basically, the entire world missed it. (sighs) Have you you thought about that night when Jesus was born? Basically, the entire world missed it, but when that baby was born, it changed the world, and the world will never be the same. And God did not just come, it says visited, God did not just come to check on us. He didn't come to punish us. He didn't come to scare us into submission. He came to redeem us. What a beautiful thing. And that leads us to the last effect of redemption that we see. We see it up there already. Salvation rescues us from darkness. Look at verse uh, 79. And I don't have time to develop this one completely, but he says to give light to those that are in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet, feet in the path of peace. And we'll talk about peace more next week, but to guide our feet. He gives life. He gives light. He gives hope. He rescues us from what we deserve and gives us what we could never earn this Christmas I want you to think about the salvation that we have it's a gift it's a blessing it's that what we don't deserve and redemption this redemption that Jesus came to offer this redemption that Jesus came when he visited us and visited his people, this redemption should change you, not just your eternity, but it should change everything about you. The redemption we have in Christ, because he visited our world over 2,000 years ago, should change your everything. It should change the way you think. It should change the way you speak. It should change the way you interact with others. It should change the way that you plan for the future. It should change everything. Almost 40 years ago, it's a long time when I think of it this way, almost 40 years ago the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin. I was at a VBS I heard a, 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 a message or a challenge in VBS about hell. And through that God convicted my heart and the light of the sunshine I entered my life for the first time. I wasn't in deep darkness before that, I was was a a young boy, wasn't involved in radical sin. But you know what, I was just as deep darkness as the worst criminal you can think of. But the sunrise came into my life, and began to change me. Now since that moment, I have sinned many times. I've sinned, and I've sinned, and yet, here's the great part about it, is each time I sin, God's mercy is there. And God's mercy is still there. Why? Because Jesus forgave my sins. I want you sit to today, if you are here today, and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I, I care about you, but I want you to know that you are in darkness. You are in darkness, and darkness is a horrible place to be. And and, and life may seem good, and and the outcome of darkness might not be clear to you right now, but one day it will be clear to you. One day will come a time where there will be a reckoning of your sin, and, and because you are in darkness, your sin will doom you. But the amazing thing is, is that this Jesus that came as a baby, grew up to be a man who died for your sins. He died and he came not just for himself, not just for, uh, so so he could, again, check up on us. He came so that you can be in the light. And I, I pray that today is that day you do that. But if you are a Christian here today, Jesus didn't come just so that you could get saved and then nothing changed. He came so that your life would be radically And He came so that not so that we continue in our sin, but so that we are rescued from our sin. And if you are a Christian and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but you are allowing sin into your life, today's the day you confess get taken care of. And you know what? You we'll probably have to do it again tomorrow. But the amazing part is, forgiveness comes because God's mercy. Let's pray. God, we are thankful. Thankful for this beautiful, prophetic, real, heart-opening text. Thankful for how you worked in this man's life, Zechariah, to a righteous man, to place these words down for us through your inspiration, so that we can. Remember why Jesus Christ came. Leonard, I pray that you work in God. Lord, if there's any here today that are not your children, that they have not placed their faith in you, that they are are still in darkness, God, I pray that you will convict them. Your Holy Spirit will cause them to see this and that they will desire to change and that they will talk to someone today, whether it's myself or someone else, and, and, and they can accept you as their Savior. For us as Christians, Lord, I pray that you will help us to Do not allow sin to continue to dwell. They will confess it and will forsake it. We ask this in Christ's name.